0: My name's Ainsley Murray, thank you all very much for coming to hear our uh, our humble discussions about our work. Um, I've got two two works up, one in this gallery and one in the rear gallery, so we're just going to talk here for a little bit and then we'll go uh, into the next gallery. Um, I'd really like to keep this quite informal, so if anybody has any questions or observations or comments. Um, during the little bit that I've got to say, then please just interject. I I welcome your feedback and uh, comments. And um, if you'd like to just sort of mill around, that would also be good because the work relies on um, the bodies of the audience moving around, casting shadows on the work as you move. So, um, this work is titled Utterances and it's about the way that we form architectural space through um, our moving bodies. I don't know how many of you are architects or you know, architecture students, but what we traditionally learn in architecture school is that uh, we, we make architectural space through creating boundaries, which are the built edges of, um, of the material world. And I guess this work is really trying to turn that idea upside down to think about how we might generate architectural space through the movement of our bodies. Um, I guess it has some theoretical origins. One of them comes from uh, French cultural theorist, Michel de who wrote um, some beautiful texts about the way that body might, the body might form space through its movement. Um, in one particularly beautiful sort of passage, he talks about how space is uh, can be likened to the formation of a word as as it is spoken. So this sort of sensation that you have when you're about to form a word of something sort of quite intangible kind of forming in your throat before it actually becomes a word and this is kind of what this work is trying to get at that there is a whole series of transparent materials, translucent materials, a series of beams of light and your body moving through the space and then your shadow at some distance from your body and the way that all these things interact is uh, hopefully akin to this sort of this sense of utterance that something is in the process of forming that we can't quite define. And I guess that relates to this sort of broader idea of intangible architecture that um, perhaps architecture is not necessarily about hard material edges but possibly about uh, much more ethereal and um, un- evanescent sort of ideas. Um, to just sort of tell you a little bit about work and you know to sort of move from a, a theoretical philosophical perspective to a, a very practical perspective the the work is composed of a series of acrylic panels that have um, various patterns uh, drilled into them and a series of three, uh, three drawings that are made uh, on Tyvek. Uh, Tyvek is a kind of a plastic product um, the form of the drawings is it's probably illustrated to you, is um, looking at the way our bodies create space. I've mapped a gesture, so a hand sort of moving through space like this, and have just then speculated in some way as to how the air, the air of space might be disturbed by that gesture. So you can kind of see in some of these drawings sort of lots of random lines going everywhere, and this is all speculation on how, uh, how the air might be disturbed by our presence and how that air might actually be considered as an architectural material that is ultimately invisible and very difficult to capture. Um, this idea that we tra- might trace air or try to find a structure of air in response to the body's movement is a theme that runs right through my work, um, and it's also present in the in the work in the back exhibition as well. Um, and then that is that idea. I've tried to sort of make that a little bit more complex by, uh, like what I was just talking about before, spatializing spatializing the work with um, the lights and shadows and the involvement of the body again through the shadows. Of your movement around but you're all very stationary so we're not quite getting that but yeah i'd I'd encourage all of you um, to sort of move through this work it really is designed to be um, inhabited and not just looked at and i think that that's true of all the works in the galleries uh, here at the moment that we all really encourage you to to get involved in a bodily kind of sense So yeah, I don't know. Does anybody have any questions or anything? Or should we move into the rear gallery? Yeah? Okay, well let's head into the back gallery that's just up the corridor here. So this work is probably a little bit um, trickier to kind of... for everybody to get into. Just watch out that you don't get tangled up in all the fishing line like I did. (laughs) And just about pulled the installation down. Um, This work is called Dissolution and Departure and it's uh, an installation that is really about um, the weight of architecture. By that I mean it's not just about um, the physical weight, obviously it's made of very lightweight materials. Again, it's uh, made of Tyvek, this fabulous material that sort of looks like paper but actually isn't. And I've just endeavoured to to craft an architectural space, an architectural passage that you again inhabit in a bodily sort of sense. Um, And the the fishing line and sinkers are all sort of intended to, um, to to really make you consider this idea of weight. The weight of architecture, I guess, has a has a bit of a broader meaning for me. I'm an architect by training, but I've just recently completed a PhD in visual art. And I had this um, fairly wonderful and exciting adventure in this interdisciplinary kind of, um, kind of way that made me think quite a lot about disciplinary weights and how, how we interact in, in a disciplinary sense, particularly in an academic environment. Um, I had a very unique experience of sort of, um, I guess, moving from a, quite a strict sort of architectural background into an art, into, an, into visual arts as a field and the way that these two fields interacted was um, endlessly challenging and stimulating. Um, so this work, I'll just again tell you a little bit about it, its physicality and its language. Um, as with the previous work, Utterances, this work also uses um, some maps of um, human gestures in space. So all these kinds of um, patterns that you can see in, uh, in the Tyvek are, uh, are gestures in space, so particular movements that have been tracked and traced and then fragmented and put back together in a different sort of language and that language is then overlaid with other kinds of languages so the horizontal patterns and then um, uh, Patterns that are derived from Braille and other t- sort of tactile languages um, Somebody at the opening the other night said to me the most wonderful sort of thing that she She really felt that this space of repetition and ritual was very strong in the development of the languages. And that's really what a lot of my work is about, is um, the cerebral space that opens up through repetition and through constantly doing the same thing over and over again, so much so that it becomes different every single time. So although these patterns have been repeated over and over again, I see them as a series of unique moments that are connected to a, to a particular kind of mental space, if you like. So um, I don't know if anybody has got any questions or comments about that, I think sort of pretty much all I'd really like to say about it. You're welcome, you guys, to sort of wander in, if you like, if there's room. Um, Painting, oh, yeah.
1: See, um, the anchors oh. along the bottom of the work. Can you talk yeah,
0: I guess um, I really meant
1: to
0: anchors, no. Well, I, I, when I, when I was making this work, I was thinking a lot. Like I said, about the weight, the weight of architecture, so metaphorical mm-hmm. sort of weight, and um, you know, and the physical weight that we often have mm-hmm. to deal with. You know in an architectural project Mm -hmm. Um, and I really wanted this sensation of this a kind of architecture that just peeled away from all of these expectations Mm -hmm. Uh, and so in the central part of the installation it's sort of sitting almost on the ground and then it's sort of spiraling out and up and um, and floating in Mm -hmm. air but then when I really start studying air <laughs> mm. I, I start to think of it as a liquid and so I, sort of, I started to, to think much more about um, the visual uh, associations of how we might understand space as, as a liquid rather than as a, mm. as a kind of a dispersed mm-hmm. um, um, particle-based mm-hmm. sort of air. So really the sinkers are, are perhaps um, that we could just as easily imagine it's, it's underwater or in a liquid, in a liquid state. A um, very yeah. literal description of what, yeah, what they're
1: yeah. about. And that idea of liquid, I mean, I always think, because mm. working with air, how we don't tend not to notice it. Mm. And, and I think of the analogy of a fish who would not notice the water. Exactly, the yeah, exactly, yeah. So somehow some sort of devices to make us, and we can feel it, but we don't notice it because it's always there, so we forget about it. Yeah, that's right. So there's devices and this as well that makes us start to think about it. Yeah. Well. And also the weight of the, I mean, it's very, very heavy. Uh, it's a huge weight. Yeah, exactly. Uh, but again, because we're used to yeah. being within it.
0: Yeah, which is the, mm-hmm. I mean, with a lot of the themes that I work with, that really is um, the difficulty when you're working with thing with themes and ideas that resist um, visualization. Even if you can visualize them, once you do visualize them they're not those things anymore. So if you visualize the air in a way you've lost the discussion about the air because you've kind of tried to pin it down and so it's somehow a challenge of my practice is how to Um, how to allude to these things without making them incredibly obvious and then losing the quality which attracted me in the first place. And I just noticed in this one, as I've been kind of charging in and out of this installation, just installing it, just the the passage of the body causes the whole thing to to move and to to shudder. And um, it is, you know, by inference that we understand the presence of air most often, yeah. Um the, hmm. the hand is very apparent to you, there's randomness, it's a hand-made, it's Yeah. Stuff. Is that a very important thing, is, you know, in why we Yeah, I think so. Um, like I said, the um, this space of sort of ritual and repetition is really important in my work, and so everything is handmade, always. A, and it w- in my mind it would be a completely different thing if um, it were produced by a machine. And the way I've actually made these uh, perforations is to use a soldering iron and just, you know, just spend you know, weeks and, and months actually just forming these patterns. Um, but yeah, I, uh, the role of the hand and the crafting of it by hand is really significant um, because it is the presence of the body which is important in the installation and in every aspect of its production.
2: I have a question. The, the distribution of the of the graphic nota- well, I, what I would could see as graphic notations. Is there a particular underpinning idea as to how you have located? Like, for example, you can see the horizontal repetition of these small, discrete lines, but then the, the sort of the broken circles seem to have much more. Mm-hmm. Um, what I would consider particularly as an indeterminacy to them. So I'm curious: is there, a, is there? A, how do you organise these patterns?
0: Well, this one, um, this installation has been organised according to this idea of, of dissolution, basically. So it's kind, of, it's working in two ways. As you um, you move from here into the centre of the installation, the perforations sort of increase in their intensity, and so by the time you get on the inside of this face the surface is um, quite richly dissolved and there's a lot of air and light passing through it. But then it's working the other way as well, that uh, these panels are obviously much uh, taller than the ones on the outside, so it's dissolving as you come out as well. So it's really this kind of dual movement that's, gen- that's controlled really how I've, um, how I've distributed the perforations and patterning.
2: Spatial preoccupations in contemporary architectural design are largely driven by ocular paradigms, which are nowhere more evident than in the discipline of architecture's copious practices of drawing and methods of dissemination. Media, technology, historical conventions and processes of propagating the visual contribute to determining the currency and perpetuity of these practices, including the inspired hand sketch on trace the digital exactitude of virtual construction, detailing and construct- and coordination, and the consumption of architectural publications. As a creative activity produced within the imagination and requiring expressive transmission, architecture relies on practices of communication authorised by the sense of sight. However, this reliance on the visual can be substantially different from understanding architecture's experiential corporeality, which relies to the, which relates to the anatomy of the human ear, in turn promoting a different, even necessary emphasis on exploring architecture through processes other than the visual. Understood as types of internal vibrations, hence your comment of the breath, our perception of sound by the ear is a delicate and complex instrument that detects movements of air molecules and the differences in frequency and pitch that the movement creates which is why it relates to both sound and matter, or spatial awareness as an auditory landscape. As the human ear is the single apparatus in the body that simultaneously perceives both sound and matter, sound and architecture therefore anatomically associated and not as unrelated as what we may first think, particularly for those who have been trained in conventional architecture. In the context of a growing emphasis on the necessity of medium and high-density architectural development, which can also result in rising noise levels and the experience of alienation, greater recognition for the role the auditory has in facilitating spatial perception therefore becomes significant. Also of significance are the processes with which modalities of the auditory can better inform architectural design thinking and making. In my work, including these three projects exhibited here at RMIT Gallery, varying degrees of emphasis have been given to the auditory rather than the ocular, across a range of modes of composition, representation and use, through an elaboration of composer John Cage's Procedures of Indeterminacy. The significance of this offers a richer repertoire of space, placemaking and design techniques within an emerging field of research between architecture and music, which in Cajun terms includes sound, noise and silence. The broader corpus of my architectural and creative practice enriches architectural design to include an understanding of music's potential role as scribed, performed, listened to and built. Conceived thus, The conception of spatial listening that I am concerned with is orientated towards the experiential aesthetic sound and listening assemblages in architectural design, with an emphasis on design detailing and, by association, the architect's listening awareness and and capacities unfettered by oculocentric paradigms. It is a conception that directly relates my work to strategies and techniques of Cajun indeterminacy, silence, and his interest in East Asian thinking, particularly, consequently raising the question of its cultivation in a wider application, such as into the domain of site specific, non Western architectural environments and phenomenological profiles. In considering what design predilections they might also offer contemporary architectural practice, with specific emphasis on the efficacy of spatial listening. I recently completed fieldwork into the dry landscape or Karesansui Gardens and corresponding temple architecture in Kyoto, Japan, the results of which include the third project I am exhibiting at RMIT Gallery titled Listening Through the Stillness that I am standing on. Presented in the materiality of my process of making, exhibiting and writing, Different scales and intensities of Cages indeterminacy strategies and techniques have been experimented with and speculated upon as novel compositions across a body of project work situated between architecture and music, including these three projects. Cartographic marks were employed to spatialise sound and, contrarywise, the location of sound within space In my first project titled 7456 Sound and Space of Architecture, which is a series of etchings on your right. In my second project titled Le trois de Paris, on your left, attention was to the passage of the seasons and the demarcation of dates through pavement photographs, which developed toward the creation of sonorous aesthetic effects. And in my third project that I'm standing on titled Listening Through the Stillness, an embodiment of the notion of experiential aesthetic spatial listening in a recorporealization of what I'm calling deep listening has been considered. Such explorations and preoccupations contribute to an intertextual methodology for my architectural and creative practice. Throughout my work an attention to materiality is explored to resonate including ways in which it decays with time and use much as sound dissipates following its projection. An exploration of materiality in my projects includes aluminium, which is what this work has been made out of, treated to procure an indeterminate outcome through being walked on. Handmade inks from pigments have been used to react with zinc plates, again the etchings, which results the results proceeding from invisibility or silence through a spectrum of greys to black, or the complete interpenetration of sound. Materiality has also been used to maintain immediacy between the work's implicit content and the viewer as an audible cartography of a distant city through the seasons, which is how I mounted the work on your left. Across these experimental projects and across the seasons and colour spectrums, Cajun indeterminacy reveals an exactitude that has been measured, as well as endlessly left open for future expression. The journey across my three projects exhibited here at RMIT Gallery takes in novel compositions of line, signature and sonority, a cartographic tracing into aluminium, zinc and handmade paper. The disciplinary layerings productively explored between architecture and music in these projects consequently open the work to multifarious permutations for reading, performance and most importantly an attunement to the notion of experiential aesthetic spatial listening which emerges first through the cartographic marks of locating sound within the space in the etchings, which is a project that explores an interrelation between architecture and sound from my four-dimensional experience in sound recording through architect Daniel Liebeskin's Jewish Museum Berlin. The prints graphically present a spatial listening diagram of indeterminate sound activity relative to the human body and the architectural interior in which this experience took place. Through the indeterminacy techniques that were employed to first create the drawings, then the prints, the project questions how ideas of architecture and sound are represented on paper through temporal and spatial symbols, and the characteristics of notation versus documentation. Across the audible cartography of Le Trottat de Paris, As a cycle of seasons, map of the city of Paris, and through the persistent rhythmic reading of each date that opens the arrested spatio-temporal moment of each photograph in relation to each viewer's reading and recollection, a different type of reading as an audible cartography of spatial listening then becomes apparent. Evoking a recorporalisation of deep listening as an engagement not only through the ears, but through the mind and body as well made possible through direct participation with the etched black aluminium panels in this work I'm standing on. Spatial listening is here understood as an inward and sonorous journey journey and process of acute, concentrated self-perception, augmented by the sustained receptiveness to the natural and cultural breath. In walking on the black panels from right to left, so from where I am this way and then around, in an abstracted three-dimensional Enzo circle that begins with the longitude and latitude notations, this orientates the participant's physical and cognitive movement and listening across the work and onto the wall of photographs behind me. At the same time, it articulates the circuitous and transitory relationship between the endlessness of sounds, karasansui, and architecture that underpins the work. Listening through the stillness requires a gradual process of minute awareness to its spatial listening and properties and references, inscribed into its sea of emptiness or projecting through the cloud of deep silence that constitutes the black plates in one of the Karasansui temples in in Kyoto. Phrasing, or as Cage might say, the morphology of spatial listening, can be thought about like the breath. Meaning is in the rhythm of the breath, as it begins, is sustained, and it dies away. It is the fundamental relationship of our body with the environment. We experience this morphology of spatial listening through a between intentional and non-intentional sounds that Cage showed involved an idea of ambient sound. My interest in use of spatial listening considers a simmer liberated acuity however in an architectural listening experience and is conditioned by the site specificity of that experience. It is a heightened auditory sensibility that comes from experiencing built architecture and environments adrift from ocular pervasiveness and calculation of acoustic conditions, a sensibility that architect Peter Zumthor offers in his work as an auditory experience, as an immersive delectation of listening to its spatial atmosphere, which he asks us to experience through the senses. Reflected in his sensory idea of intuition and atmosphere is tactility for our ears, calling for us to listen to interiors as they collect, amplify and transmit sound. In the three projects I am exhibiting at RMIT Gallery and my particular consideration of the auditory through Cajun Indeterminacy, I aim to contribute to this important and still largely overlooked area of design research between architecture, music and acoustic ecology through my conception of spatial listening. Thank you. It's lovely because I had met Ioanni a few years ago. Um, we'd, we'd had a sort of shared moment of, of understanding, which was at a conference dealing with architecture, acoustics, and music. So um, he, he said something very similar then with respect to what he referred to as the subtleties and the need to um, not so much remove the extraneous noise, but to listen through it or beyond it. And in his book, The Eyes of the Skin, which you probably know, he refers to the first sense that we've become familiar with as being touch. And it's the one that he mentioned again last night, as the one that is considered to be the lowest of all the senses. And he referred to a number of references, including the Greeks, with respect to how touch is was so important. In his book, The Eyes of the Skin, he says the first experience that we have with touch is in utero. So before our eyes have fully formed and opened, before our ears have fully formed and are listening, it is touch that, that has been so significant uh, from the beginning. So, But by extension from touch, and the same with your work of course, and also Malta's, even though you're dealing with light and um you know, the sorts of sensibilities perhaps particularly in in this paper or plastic that looks like paper um there is such a um invitation to touch your work and you just you do, you do feel this with your work other than also within that that sort of intellectualization of your work and of course malters if you haven't been around the corner to see you can't you can't help but put your hand on the on the shop around the corner, so I think that that relationship between those subtleties in our work is is what is the most significant. I agree. I
1: just wanted if Cheryl can demonstrate this with the sound of the
2: demonstrate
1: what what you're thinking there. What <laughs> is
2: that? Uh, well, you can see the from the opening night that the work has already begun to be marked, and the intention is that those marks also become part of the work which uh, is something that Cage also did with, with musically, with his scores, with the invitation for performers to interpret the graphic notations of his scores in a way that was true to them. So following following Cage, the, the marks that you make if you walk on the work and they're wearing the footwear to make marks becomes part of the work. So there's no right way as such because uh, people wander all over the work, but when I laid it out because Japanese texts are read from right to left uh, and because of the reference of the enzo circle it 's simply a case of if, if you choose to start here and and walk walk from here this way, a lot slower of course but, but and then and then start to consider this relationship then through this. As you can see, the passage of the seasons beginning with autumn. So, through the work, as you, as we, as you take on board the information the photographs and on the plates, through to here.
1: Is it also the sound that you create in the whole time? Of course, and that,
2: that does depend on the shoes that you're wearing, which is something that also happens in Japan, or well, this experience that I had in Japan with the temples depending on the types of, not so much that you're allowed to wear shoes on all, on all of the floorboards, but in some cases you are. So depending on the types of shoes that you wear also affects the type of um, sounds that are made, of course. And particularly, maybe perhaps more than the Kato San the stroll gardens, um, the spacing of the stones in the garden and the scale of the stones in the garden also is to accentuate that relationship and the positioning of the stones change as you approach so the sacred spaces they become smaller so your sounds become quieter so you become become more still similar to the to the um, tea house of course where then it's almost this complete in, in the cases of what I experienced complete silence because the, the grounds were moss so you're walk, walking you know in this sort of environment of silence which is to prepare your body for the experience of the tea ritual and obviously leave the uh, the reality of your your everyday existence behind in that moment.
1: It, it was interesting this question about Japanese aesthetic and I think that's sort of throughout all our work and what you're talking about just made me also think of I forgot her name but she's a Japanese architect and um, she loved her grandmother's house and the, the, the thing that was most important to her were the the different sounds the sliding door panels made. And when she went to the house was being pulled down and they had to build a new house. And rather than rebuilding an aesthetic of the house, she actually took some of her favourite doors and put them into the new house. And it was about the sound and every time she heard the sound, that door would make she would then think of her grandmother. And is that aesthetic is, is so strong in Japan, but in, in cultures that has been forgotten a little bit.
2: I think particularly with, with certainly the Karasansui temples, which are the ones that I focused on when I was there, um, it also too has this, um, you could almost use the word dare I say it, but orchestration of sound. So mm-hmm. the relationship between you know, the, the, how the architecture has been spatially laid out, as you know, it, it's a it's a series of of, um, or you know, there's the the transitional spaces or the institutional spaces of the, that constitutes as the veranda, and then how those shoji screens are opened and closed, or the persim screens are opened and closed, and how the rooms are established with regard to the tatami. But even within that, then, the subtleties of all sorts of other little, little nuances, like the positioning of um, a water basin with respect to the priest's private chambers or with respect to where the priest sees guests, and the different sounds that are evoked through the landscape in different, different times of the year. So when you're there, for example, in autumn, it's a considerably different type of soundscape experience than when you're there, for example, in winter where, where there are no leaves. So and the birds and the natural kind of natural kind of, um, of insects and so on and so forth.
0: <laughs>
1: it's putting me up. I think I have to turn that down in a minute. Um, I'm an industrial designer and um, who design, you know, we're designing cars and mobile phones, and furniture, and so on. Um, and so I've, I've sort of transgressed into thinking of how, how you can actually design air and, and special environments. Um, and sort of 10 years ago, I started thinking about how the machines we put into buildings <laughs> change the space and affect the space. And as chair was speaking, I could not help but listen to the hum of the building. And it's the air conditioning system and the lighting um, that have this constant background hum like the, the fish in the water we, we start to not hear it but until it's off and we sort of have this big relief that the building sounds different um, and so I started thinking well how can we um, treat our environments differently um, and perhaps with a great aesthetic quality to to the space um, and to the air. And I'm using the word aesthetic now as its sort of original meaning, which is perceptual or or perception. So aesthetic is our ability to perceive. So it's not about judgement, saying this is beautiful, that's not beautiful. Um, And I really began on this almost journey of, of, of opposition to rid the world of air conditioning systems. Because not only does an air conditioning, what it does of standardising interior environment um, and the sound, the invasive sound. And if you walk around the city at night, you can hear all the air conditioning plants in the city and it's almost this you know, alien sound within the space. Um, but also um, this idea of standardisation and um, commod- commodification of, of everything, including the air within the space, that we want to have this ability to constantly control and standardise and normalise. And so I thought, well, how can we treat the air a little bit more like the air's outside on a a nice day in a park? You think of a a hot night. Um, It's lovely sitting outside, but it's stuffy and sort of um, almost unbearable inside. And so I started looking at how is the air different, how does it behave and I began observing outside air and trying to analyse it and trying to, and it's something so difficult to quantify something, a concept such as the night air, you know, how can you, if you can say okay it's 32 degrees and it's so and so much air movement and so and so much humidity really doesn't tell you about the experiential qualities um, and by observing outside air it's just by looking at a tree for instance I realised that you know there'd be a A leaf fluttering here and not here and what that tells is how that it's not only temporal the air that we have these breezes but they're they're very spatial and the air I feel here is different than the air this lady feels there Um, and So I began building devices to try and observe air movement within interior spaces, and that's probably where we can have a look at this laser machine here. We all walk into the the space. I'll crawl through my rabbit hole.
0: Turn this down a little bit.
1: No one else is supposed to walk into here. So my first um, was really collaborate collaboration between a colleague of mine, Jason Palmington, um, and he was playing around with lasers, um, looking at different sort of and we're thinking, well, within interior, how can we observe how air moves? And so I thought, well, if we make a laser that throws a sheet of and we use a, a fogger, we can start observing what the air is doing an interior space. And so we built our first laser machine. And um, the thing we discovered wasn't really what we had expected. Um, what I was expecting was to see how air circulates through space, sort of like the blue and red arrows you have in engineer's drawings. Um, the first thing that, that struck me was how complex the movement you can see the patterning um, of how the air, this constant swirling, the vortice is, is the patterning of the, the movement and the complexity of it. But then the really important discovery came is that you know by moving through it, you know what the body does to the air and how sensitive it is. So you can see how your breath so and in one experiment I would have a my breath going six metres across the room and you realise you know that it's, it's much more interactive um, than one thinks and that my breath or my talking doesn't only reach you but the the air that I exhale reaches you as well. No, because as we look at the other piece we can, we can see that as well it is, of course, like in any sort of scientific experiment, your experiment affects the outcome. Um, and the smoke is is warm and it's slightly oily, so we do get this heighty sense of this this sort of oily liquid. But that is really what the what the air is doing. It was so strong that it completely changed yeah. and rapidly you know it was so unpredictable as well how it behaves so we think of it as a constant but every 10 minutes it would change and mm-hmm. you know one minute my smoke rings would work the next minute wouldn't mm-hmm. um but i think it's important that it's it's i'm trying to visualize how air behaves not because i want to um again go towards this dominant sight. You know, the, the vision that, that becomes so dominant. But more that by seeing it, you can start thinking about it in a different way and then you can start feeling it differently. Mm-hmm. And what I don't have here is a whole lot of experiments I've been doing with smell space mm-hmm. and, and scent. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Yeah. It's
0: like
1: micro In the same way, yeah. So, and that's the whole thing of, of going on an experimental journey that, you know, I, I set out to discover one thing about how air behaves and I discovered something else. So what I discovered is how our movements, you know, waving a book or something, um, affect the air within the space. And What I really wanted, what I'm sort of aiming to do is to design sort of this very subtle fan-like machines that can move the air around the room to almost recreate um, the type of air movement you'd have sitting out on a park on a nice day. Um, But also then allowing you to open the windows, and what air conditioning does, which I didn't say a a minute ago, one, you know, it's calculated that 40% of the world's energy is being consumed by buildings, heating and cooling, and cooling is the main um, really... Contribute her to that, and so there's this irony that um, as we're moving into an age of climate change, that the more we try and control our environments, the more we will be causing climate change, and it'll become this sort of endless spiral into catastrophe. Mm. So, thinking, how can we start to light into air differently and accept difference, accept the fact that it's cold one day and warm one day, and um, you know, there's a nice humidity, and then the air's dry, and really relish this as an experience of life. And that's what Shell was talking about, how the change in seasons. And if you're in an air-conditioned space, you forget the seasons. You, for- you have no idea what's happening outside. You don't hear the beautiful sounds, and that's mm-hmm. something Cage was talking about as well. He'd rather sit in front of his window, an open window, listening to the traffic than listen to someone else's compositions. Um, so I'll, I'll move over to this piece because I'm, I imagine we're running out of time um, I then because I, I became interested in patterning and I thought well how can I start making air behave in, in sort of a um, how can I sort of start mastering its, its composition and the patterns it creates and the movement it creates and, and the vortex became one obvious um, sort of uh, phenomena. So uh, the environment's different even within a space that you try and control. But essentially, the the vortex is a self-propelling structure that that the spinning ring moves itself through the space. And sometimes you can see it hanging here for about a minute or so, and you can see what how. Um, this idea of of what I was talking about temporal and spatial and how spatial air movement is and we can wait for another one to come in a minute also starts making me think of time because every minute they come and when you know Shell was listening they were coming all the time and now that we're waiting for one it's awesome time changes again Um, you know what I, I sought to do here is to show how air has a, this structure to it. I have one later. you can be here at your leisure. Um, maybe I can go for one more and we can ask questions and then I move on to the next piece. It's Which the became light, yeah. the, the difficulty as well, and it, it did become machine-making because the, the ones I originally built were all hand-operated, and I'm glad you mentioned music again because I thought of a trumpeter who, here comes another one. Um, no, they're just not behaving at the moment. Um, <laughs> of, of, you can do it manually the trumpet, but can you then get, get a machine to play the trumpet? And this is almost as difficult as to make yeah. perfect smoke rings. Well, what I was
2: going to say was that...
1: So this is it's a series of devices in here that, that make fog. So there's no... Chemicals here, there's no dried ice or anything, it's just pure water vapor. Um, the technologies are piezoelectric transducers which vibrate at ultrasonic frequencies and they literally pound up into this nanofold. Um, and I started using these to I thought, well, how does air move through windows within buildings? And our predominant thinking is always that the air Comes from the outside into the building. That somehow, you know, there's the large space, and then it goes into the smaller space. But when I started observing air movement, I, I realised it's far more complex, and that my first sort of um, observations were that air was moving out of the building more than it was moving into the building. And this again made me think of that whole urban interior relationship of, you know, that. Not only does sound from outside go into a building, but the building makes it sound. the building makes it smells and and the air is exchanged so it's this much more dynamic environment and that by opening a door all of a sudden the relationship of how the air moves through a house completely changes and But what it really you know what, what I think this is reveals is um, again this liquid nature of air but most importantly, how sensitive it is. And we were doing a photography session before and I was being photographed with this piece and I had to hold my breath because even by sort of breathing through the nose, you know, you cause this incredible movement of air and i let it settle again. By walking past it, see how much movement you, you create and again this whole relationship with the body and the air and how sensitive it is as a structure um, and how fluid it is but again this pattern appears again and again and again um, how we can see the vortices so what we we're observing in there in the question that was you know is it the, the smog machine that's causing that movement um, but we can see the same spiraling the vortices Hearing again and again, and it is really, the vortex is really the signature of, signature pattern of, of any fluid. So it happens in water and it happens in the air. So
0: this is a kind of it's a fog?
1: It's a fog, yeah. Is it weightier
0: than the air is Well, it's, it's,
1: it's probably got a little bit more weight, but you can see that, you know, some of it's moving up while it's, it's falling down. It to that surface. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, that's the thing that yeah, is so difficult to um, to observe, because as soon as you try to observe it, just your observation changes it. Um, but it, it is an If You feel it's basically got no, you know, it's not like steam. It's not hot. It's dry it's dry ice-like, but it's not dry ice, yeah. As I said, it's, it's really only a fog. Um, and I was quite worried about it sort of affecting some of Shell's um, Japanese paper there, but um, it seems to dissipate into the space quite easily. And it, you can see the floor. There's a little bit of dribble there, but I think that's a machine. But the floor's not really very wet underneath. So it's, I mean, it's such a fine fog. sometimes when you're in you
0: see fog Yes, yes,
1: yeah, doing the same thing, yeah. Yeah, and if you look behind the plane again, you see the vortex, and they call it vortex streaks that the the plane creates. But what this, I mean, before someone, a friend of mine came in, Michael and said what he liked about this work is that, you know, by you being, moving towards the work, you really make the work, and that's the whole idea, that your body and your interaction with it then becomes the piece. Mm-hmm.
0: Um, how is this kind of thing like? Um, this
2: is something so beautiful that I you know, that is a really thing
1: here yeah. But is it... Um, how is it the Well, it's actually quite good because... Um, I mean, it was never meant to be that, but um, these devices are used for hum- humidifying air. We're putting more moisture in the air, and they do ionize the air as well, which um, sort of photocopiers do. if you' ever go into photocopy a room, you can notice how horrible the air is, and that's because um, it has the opposite effect of it dries the air and it deionizes it. I think you know even here, even within you know, you might have to stand here by yourself, and no one else is around, and all of a sudden. You see quite a strong breeze coming through and you don't even know where it has come from which is the whole thing again what we're talking about um, how complex the movement is within within spaces